right, so Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 24, and reading through chapter 2, verse 3. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day... God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay. So here we are, back in Genesis, as we're looking at the days of creation uh, and of course, the last time we met, which I do believe was actually two weeks ago, so we're on schedule, uh, we did look at the first 23 verses, and we looked at the first five days of creation, and we saw that how God had an eternal decree from all time uh, to show forth his glory, and to do so, and to fulfill that decree, he, do, he does it through the work of creation, that is one way that is part of how God fulfills his decree. The other part of how God fulfills his decree is through providence, in which he governs all that he has done and made. So creation and providence are the two ways that God brings forth his decree. So God has a decree. He creates in order to fulfill that decree. And then what we saw when we looked at this last week, um, in the first couple of verses, you see sort of the prologue to creation there. And you see that as he creates the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, or, or uh, yeah, without form and void, or tohu and bohu, the, the, you know, the, the nice Hebrew words, or, you know, those, you know, those little, you know, that sounds like the name of some cartoon characters, you know, tohu and bohu, but it's formless and void. It has, it is desolate, and it is unpopulated. So God goes about the work then of taking the formless and void creation and ordering it and populating it. 
That's the point of what we see in the six days. The first three days is God ordering His creation, taking the formlessness and, and forming it, uh, fashioning it, uh, preparing it to be populated. And then the last six, uh, three days, days four, five, and six, He populates. So in day one, He creates the light, and then on day four, He then attaches the light, if you will, to the celestial bodies that uh, He has created in the heavens. He he uh, assigns the, the lights to the heavens. In day two, he creates the expanse in which he um, uh, separates the waters above from the waters below, and he creates an expanse. And then on day five, he populates the expanse. He puts birds in the air and fish in the waters. And then on day three, he uh, commands the water to recede and the, to have dry land appear. And then what we're going to see here in day six God will then populate the dry land with earthbound creatures, uh, uh, land creatures. And then finally, the, the pinnacle of all creation is the creation of man. So that's kind of just a bit of a recap from, from last time, uh, this ordering and this populating. And then you see this, uh, this progression of time, this progression of, of this movement of time, if you will, Day, you know, evening and morning the first day. Evening and morning the second day. This is God working and, and, and doing so in what we believe to be 24-hour days. Six 24-hour days. God does all this. He could have done it in the blink of an eye. He could, have, he could have snapped his metaphorical fingers. And it all could have been there, all ready to go in a, in a, in a blink of an eye. But God doesn't do that. God also doesn't use natural law to you know, have evolution over billions and billions of years to do this. God did this specifically in six days to show a pattern of creation, to show a pattern of work and rest. We'll see that in a moment later tonight. Work and rest, which then becomes the pattern for our week, which we'll see when we look at uh, some, something we got later. We're going to look at how um, the fourth commandment on the Sabbath uh, that is formed out of the fact that God created everything in six days. He uses that as the grounds for observing the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he says, why? Because God worked for six days. And then the seventh day, he rested from his labors. So you should follow in that pattern. Six days of labor, one day of rest. Now another thing we see here in creation, if you remember what we said from the the introduction when we looked at Genesis and the, the introduction to Genesis. We showed that this is written by Moses to a people who are leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. So they're, they're leaving one pagan polytheistic uh, land and they're going to another pagan polytheistic land in Canaan. So they're leaving paganism and they're going into a land that is uh, still occupied by pagans. And they would have had their own creation stories, their own myths, their own uh, false religion. And it was a, basically a false religion of polytheism. They had a god for this, a god for that, a god for the next thing. You know, the sun god, the moon god, the water god, the sea god, the god of death, and so on and so forth. And what God is showing here by giving this account of creation is to show that all of that is bogus. All of that is false. 
I am the one and only God. I spoke everything into creation. And I'm, to show that, I'm, I'm giving you the account. This is, in a sense, an eyewitness account of God giving it to Moses. This is how I did this. This is how I created everything. I spoke, and it came to be. I, I willed it into existence, and it came into existence. I ordered it, I fashioned it, I populated it. It is me and me alone. No other gods were in this. This was not some battle, cosmic battle royale between false gods. This is the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth, creating, ordering, populating. So you've got a very strong, in a sense, monotheism or one godism being portrayed here versus the polytheism of Egypt and the polytheism of Canaan. So you've got this very strong monotheism. Now, you're going to have skeptics who will come around and say, well, the ancient Hebrews were not originally monotheists. They were, they were polytheists, and then they became a fancy word called henotheists. And if you're like, what does that mean? They worshipped hens? No, they didn't worship hens. A henotheist, that's from the Greek word for one. So it was sort of uh, a belief that we have one God, and they have one God, and the group over there, they have one God, but, but Yahweh is our God. So we have one God, it's Yahweh, and the Canaanites, well, they have Baal, and they have Ashtaroth, and, and the other regions have their God. So it's one God among many other gods. And then from that, then they went into what you would call a strict monotheism, which is one God alone. Well, here we see from the very beginning it is a monotheism. And if anything, polytheism is a result of the fall. Polytheism is more of the digression, more of the devolution. You see that in Paul when he talks about this in Romans 1. He says, they gave up worshiping the one true God. And what did they do? Well, they started worshiping birds and worms and, you know, the, you know, whatever little animals, <laughs> creeping things and bugs and whatever. They gave up worshiping the one true God, and they made gods of everything else, including themselves. That's polytheism. Polytheism is, is a devolution as a result of sin and the fall. So God is showing this account to, to tell his people, look, I am the one true God. Your covenant God, the one who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am the one who created all of this. And I'm the one who is taking you out of slavery, and I'm giving you this land, and I'm going to drive out the polytheists in that land as well and give it to you as an inheritance because I, God, keep my promises to my people. So then as we get into this passage, like I said, we're just going to, it's just finishing off creation week, days six and seven. And the theme from, for tonight is the same as the theme from last time. So God creates the heavens and the earth for his glory and our good in six days and then enters his eternal Sabbath rest. God creates the heavens and the earth for his glory and our good in six days and enters his eternal Sabbath rest. So just the two points tonight. Now the first one will probably take a little longer. And the second one, so don't worry, you're not getting cheated only because there's two points. You're going to get your money's worth, okay? Um, we'll start in verse 24, the sixth day. So, and God said, there's that familiar formula, 
of creation, God speaks. And what does he say? He says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And then what are these living creatures? Well, there's livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. So there's that formula. God speaks and it was so. And then 25 just explains verse 24. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So right away when we get to the sixth day, once you get past those first two verses, when you get to verse 26, you're going to find out day six is a special day. All right, It's a special day in relation to the other five days. Now, it doesn't start off so special. It starts off like all the other days. Day six begins, God speaks, something happens, and he's populating the land now. But when we get to verse 26 in a moment, we're going to see that there's more to this day than just the creation of the land animals. And it's special because we see in day six the creation of mankind, the creation of humanity. And a good portion of the text then is, is devoted to the creation of man and how God blesses man and how God gives man a mandate to uh, govern the world, to, to be in charge of everything, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill this creation that I have made with the image of God. That, that's, that's part of all the, the, the mandate that God will give them. But before the creation of man and woman, we see the population of the earth with living creatures, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth. Now, these are broad categories. Again, we need to remember the Bible was not written within a 21st century scientific biology type of frame of mind, right? There are, there are thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of different species of animals and land animals. Here, it's just saying, look, we, I, God makes... He makes the cattle, right? The little creeping things that you see on the ground, and the big land uh, creatures as well, the beasts of the earth. So he makes like, uh, you know, livestock. He makes, you know, squirrels and ferrets and snakes and all that stuff. And he makes, you know, big beasts, elephants and rhinos and dinosaurs and all those other things. All of these things, and that, again, that important phrase that we saw uh, last time, all according to their kind. In fact, you see that one, two, three, four, five times in those two verses, all according to their kind. In other words, livestock produces more livestock. Creeping things produce more creeping things. Beasts of the earth produce what? More beasts of the earth, okay? Um, now again, this is not with the intention of fighting, you know, apologetic wars in the 20th and 21st century, but according to their kind suggests what? No microevolution. No, you know, goo to you via the zoo, as Answers in Genesis would say, okay? That's the idea of according to their kind. It's, you don't have the fish of the sea producing creeping things, and then creeping things producing livestock, and then livestock producing beasts of the earth, and then beasts of the earth producing man. No. God makes these species, these, these gen general categories, all 
at once, and they produce and reproduce according to their kind. So no microevolution, no theistic evolution. It's not like, you know, that, that's sort of like the halfway house between what the Bible teaches and the theory of evolution. It's like, well, we want to keep evolution, but we'll just say, well, God created it, and then he kind of, you know, gave it the little, the little start. It's like, okay, there, go. Now, you know, govern, I'll govern evolution. No, 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 no. I made the beasts of the earth. I made the livestock. I made the creeping things, and they all reproduce according to their kind. Like we said, we saw the previous five days. God said. He is the one who speaks. And, of course, we looked at as well last time that Jesus Christ, being the eternal word of God, is the agent of creation. He is the one through whom all things were made. So God speaks, and stuff happens. It is so. Fiat creation. Creation by command. Not the creation of the French car, which... It's very un- Italian, my bad. <laughs> the Italian car. <laughs> we own French cars either. <laughs> Fiat creation. It's Latin for creation by command. So again, what we see in verses 24 and 25 is the populating of what was done on day three. Day three, which is uh, you see in verses 11 through 13, is where... Uh, well, actually, sorry, 9 through 13, um, where God gathers the water. He collects the waters that are under the heavens. So he's, in day two, he separated the waters above from the waters below. And then the waters below the heavens, he, he gathers together in one place so that dry land appears. So he had, he had ordered that to be, you know, he, he sort of, he, he ordered the, the, the separation of the land from the, from the water, and now in day six, the, the corresponding day, he is now populating the, the land. He's putting things on the land, uh, all of the, the vast uh, variety of, of, of uh, life that you see in the animal kingdom. It's, it's amazing. If you go to the zoo or you watch the nature shows, you see the, the vast complexity and the vast beauty and the vast variety of, of life that God has created. I mean, think of like the duck-billed platypus. I mean, God has a sense of humor. He puts, he puts a duck's bill on a little furry creature thing, right? Think of like a peacock with his feathers and his tail. Think of, a, you know, I mean, all of the, the marvelous variety that you see, all of it which brings glory to God as, as a as a master creator, as a master artist, if you will, and acknowledges his, his glory, it brings glory to him, and God acknowledges that it was good. After he had populated the earth, he looks at it and says, this is good. This is good. So that's verses 24 and 25. Again, it feels just like all the other days so far, but now when you get to verse 26... Something special happens. In fact, arguably, you could say this is the most important part of Genesis chapter 1, outside of the fact that of verse 1, where God created the heavens and the earth. Here you get the creation of man in the image and likeness of God. Verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the stage is set once God has finished the first part of day six. The stage is set, if you will, for the crowning achievement of his creation. Now, I don't say that to boast, you know, hey, look at us, humanity, we're so great. No, no, but it is the crowning achievement of his creation. Because of no other creature, birds of the air, fish of the sea, the land creatures, none of them are made in the image of God. So in a sense, yes, we are special. And, and the earth now has been, the, the whole creation now has been set. It's, it's ready. It is ready to be populated by God's image bearers. Now we're going to look at this verse, verse 26. We're going to take it apart in like three or four or five uh, different uh, parts here. And the first thing you see here is let us make man in our image after our likeness. You've got those plurals there. Now, the word in, in Hebrew here that is used for the word God is the word Elohim. You may have heard that word before. Elohim. Now, in the, in the Hebrew, that is a plural word. Okay, it is, It's in a plural form, I should say. Um, but it's used in a singular manner. Because you know, God says, and he, you refer to God, Elohim, as a he, not a they. But here you've got this, let us make uh, man in our image and in our likeness. The construction is a first person plural. Now there have been three answers as to what the plural means here. The first one is that this is what they call the plural of majesty. The plural of majesty. The best way I can think of it is, you know, when you used to hear Queen Elizabeth say, or maybe it was not her, sorry. It goes back, I think, what, to Queen Victoria, we are not amused. You know, she would say that, right? You know, the plural of majesty, we are not amused. We, you refer to the, to the sovereign in a plural form. So that's one way of explaining it. Another way of explaining it is to say that this is God speaking along with the heavenly host. So is God and his angelic entourage, if you will. The third is that this is a veiled reference to the Trinity. A veiled reference to the Trinity. Now, I obviously vote for option three. <laughs> because we believe, we just sang the song, right? We, <laughs> we sang the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. You know, all, you know, Lord God Almighty, uh, you know, and a, a blessed Trinity. So we know, after reading the entire of Scripture, Old and New Testament, that God reveals himself as a Trinity, a triunity. One God in essence, three in person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three share in the same divine essence, yet the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father, yet all three of them are God. So you've got one what, that is God, and three who's, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One what, three who's. 
Now, some would argue, well, you can't read that into the, New, the Old Testament because the Old Testament Jew would not have understood that to be a reference to the Trinity. Yes, correct. The Old Testament Jew would not have understood that as a reference to the Trinity because the Trinity is veiled. It is, a, it is a, something that happens progressively throughout Revelation. Right. Yeah, so that, yeah, that's part of it. They wouldn't have recognized it yet here. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's something that is revealed progressively through Scripture. You see uh, many, many references to a figure called the angel of the Lord. And it is clear that this angel of the Lord represents himself as distinct from God. And then after a while, you continue reading the references, and all of a sudden it becomes equated with God. The best example of that, one of the best examples, um, you can turn to Exodus 3. So chapter 3 of Exodus, here you see um, this is uh, Moses after his uh, failed attempt to liberate the people of Egypt on his own. Um, he's, out, he's been out in the wilderness now for 40 years. And he comes across a burning bush here. So now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire and out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. So there you've got the angel of the Lord, and now you've got God calling to him outside of the bush. Moses, Moses, and he said to him, here I am. And he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father. Wait, I thought it was the angel of the Lord. No, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You got a manifestation of a being called the angel of the Lord, and it turns out that it is God himself. And the angel of the Lord appears in other cases. And as, as Byron said, you've got David uh, speaking to the Messiah, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So there are hints of the Trinity. In fact, you even see it right here in in the first few pages, of, in the first two verses, right? God creates, and then you see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So there are hints throughout the Old Testament of the Trinity. So I do not think this is the plural of majesty. And it's, I certainly do not think it's God speaking with his heavenly host because he says, let him make it in our image. We're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God himself. So that leaves us with option three. That this is a veiled reference to the Trinity. So that's the first thing to look at. Second, going back to verse 26, where again God says, let us make man. Let us make man. Now the word there for man in the Hebrew again is Adam. Does that sound familiar? Adam. <laughs> Adam. Let us make man. Um, now, it is obviously used as a, um, 
drawing a blank here, proper names. <laughs> it is obviously used as a proper name to refer to a specific individual named Adam. But the word Adam is just a generic word for human being, mankind. It can refer to a man as a male. It can also refer to man in general as mankind. You get this in the Greek as well. In the Greek, you have the word anthropos, which can mean a male, but also can mean humanity, mankind, people, man and, men and women together. So you have this idea that it's not just Adam who is made in the image of God. It is Adam and eventually his wife Eve who are in the image of God. And also, all of humanity that will flow from their... Um, well, what, what husbands and wives do. Their children will also be in the image of God. All humanity is in the image of God. Although, of course, after the fall, that image is shattered. It is broken. It is not lost. The image is broken. But you have this idea. So when he says, let us make man in our image, it's not just Adam that's made in his image. And it's not just Adam and Eve that are made in his image. It's all of mankind. We all are made in the image of God. So we've looked at first, let us make man. Then we look second, let us make man. Now let us look third, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Those are two words in the Hebrew. You have the first one, it's, it's selim, and the other one is uh, demuth, which are used synonymously Image, likeness, it's, Hebrew does this a lot, okay? The Hebrew language does this a lot, where it'll, it'll sort of use two words that mean, that are synonymous, and they, they use it for the same thing. Parallelism and repetition are, are, are very common in the Hebrew language. So in our image and after our likeness, it, it's not to say that image is different than likeness. It's just the Hebrew way of saying, look, we resemble God in certain ways, and what is that image? How do we resemble God? Well, here's where I wanted you to keep your, the, the hymnals for the catechism answers. So, we're going to look at a couple of catechism questions. Or, well, confessional statements, I should say. Um, on page 863, in the back of the hymnal, this is Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, question 6. So Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, question 6. Where the question says, did God create man thus wicked and perverse? So he's already talking about man has fallen. And, and the question is asking, well, did God create man this way originally? And of course the catechism says, no. But God created man good and after his own image. That is, so here's an explanation of what the image is. That image is that we were created in righteousness and true holiness that he, man, might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. So the image of God is, in this, at least how this describes it, is we are created in such a way that we were righteous as God is righteous, not in, a, an, equation, not in, a, not in an equal way, but as God is righteous, we share in that righteousness. As God is holy, we share in that holiness. Righteousness, true holiness, and for the reason that we might know God 
and have fellowship and communion with him, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness. God created man to be his image bearers in order to have fellowship with him, in order to live in communion with him. And as such, man was created holy and righteous. Now flip over to the Belgic Confession, which is just a little bit past that. I'm going to look at parts of Article 14. That's on page 878. So it's not just the Germans in Heidelberg <laughs> who came up with this, but the, 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 the residents of the Belgic regions, which would be like the Netherlands and the Dutch. Um, this is also part of our confessional standards. Article 14 of the Belgic Confession speaks about the creation and fall of man. We're not going to read the whole thing but at least the first part of it, where we see here, we believe that God created man out of the dust of the earth. Yes, we do. And he made and formed him after his own image and likeness. Good, righteous, and holy, capable in all things to will agreeably to the will of God. But, being in honor, he understood it not, neither knew his excellency, but willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to the death to death and the curse, giving ear to the words of the devil. Okay, so he talks about how what that the Belgic goes on and, and, and what it's doing there is describing, yes, we were created good, holy, and righteous, but capable of falling into sin. So mankind was created sinless, but not without the capacity to fall into sin. We have the capacity to fall into sin. But notice, the catechism said, holy and righteous, and here the Belgic says, good, holy, and righteous. Now, unfortunately, you do not have this fancy book that I have here. It, well, you might have this book, but you don't have it with you. <laughs> um, this one is, it's, a, it's called Creeds and Confessions and Catechisms. Uh, just to show you that it's not just the continental tradition that talks about this, but also our Scottish and English Reformed brothers uh, do this in the uh, Westminster cat, uh, shorter, sorry, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which comes out about a hundred years after the Belgic Confession. Uh, so you just have to listen to this one. But uh, they have a section here on creation. It's chapter four and section two of the Westminster Confession. And here we see that after God had made all other creatures, He created man, male and female, with reasonable. In immortal souls, that's important too. So we, 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 are, we have a reason, we're able to, to be rational, and we have immortal souls. And we are endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his image. Having the law of God written on our hearts and the power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgression. Again, that idea, we had the ability to obey God. But we've, we also had the capacity to fall. One more uh, confessional standard. This is the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 10, which says, like all good catechisms, answer, ask the question, how did God create man? Well, let's tell you. God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion, over the creatures. So here you see our confessional standards 
um, they see the image of God as consisting of being created with knowledge, goodness, righteousness, holiness, with reasonable and immortal souls, able to fulfill the law of God that is written on our hearts, yet with the capacity to fall. So the image of God consists of all of these things. And we're going to go into it a little bit more. But knowledge, goodness, righteousness, and holiness, things we lack now because of the fall. Things we lack now because of the fall. But just to look at a few verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of Genesis. This is the book of the generations. If you remember from the introduction, that's, that's code language. That's the, the Toledot language that uh, marks a new part in the book of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man or Adam when they were created. And of course we go and you see verse 3 that uh, Adam fathers the son in his own likeness. Very important there because that's the fallen image now uh, propagating itself through natural generation. But we learn here, of course, in chapter 5, verse 1, that God created man in his own image. Chapter 9, verse 6 of Genesis. Now again, this is after the fall. There are some who teach that man lost the image of God after the fall. Um, that is wrong. We still maintain the image of God. It's just a shattered image. It is a broken image. But in chapter 9, verse 6, this is after the flood. Uh, we'll get to this, Lord willing, in, in due time. Uh, but here, uh, God makes a covenant with Noah and tells him how uh, you know, the earth will maintain its normal uh, you know, process of of seasons changing and, 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 you know, and I'll maintain uh, the normal course of events in the earth. I will no longer bring a flood to destroy the earth. And then he goes on in chapter 9, verse 6. to in a, in a sense, what you have here is like the institution of government, if you will, uh, the, at least the institution of capital punishment. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. The image of God, though broken, is still so important to God that it requires the ultimate price if you kill that image of God. If you kill the image of God that is in someone else, then your life is forfeit according to God's command. Now, just a couple more verses in the New Testament. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to jump up to verse 20 because I, I just hate reading in the middle of a sentence. So verse 20 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's where these, the Heidelberg and the Belgic and the Westminster get that language of righteousness and holiness. In other words, the, what the passage here in Ephesians is saying, look, the new life in Christ is 
a restoration project of the broken image in man. Christ comes who is the true image of God, and He fulfills all righteousness, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and now the Holy Spirit is working in us to repair what was broken in the fall, to restore us after the likeness of God, original created likeness in true righteousness and holiness. One more verse, please. A couple more pages over to Colossians chapter 3. Very similar passage. Colossians in a lot of ways uh, mirrors or resembles Ephesians. But in Colossians chapter 3 verse 10, uh, I'll just start up with verse 9. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self. Again, you notice that that's very similar to what he said in Ephesians. You have put off the old man or the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, that idea of being restored, in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there you've got the knowledge part. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness, goodness, all these things. The Being created in the image of God consists of that knowledge, goodness, righteousness, holiness, which was lost and now in Christ is being renewed. So again, also the image of God means that we are special. (laughs) We are special. In all of creation, we are special. We are physical creatures. We share a natural body, a dust body, if you will, with all the beasts of the earth. But we are closer to God than we are to the animals, okay? You know, uh, scientists like to say, well, you know, the the human genome, you're only like, what, about 5% off DNA-wise from from a monkey? It's like, yeah, but that 5% makes all the difference in the world, right? That 5% makes all the difference in the world because a monkey is still a monkey, right? Uh, and a human being is much, much different. Yeah, we have opposable thumbs, but, you know, I've yet to see the monkey who can, you know, you, what's the, the story? You put a monkey in a room with a typewriter. It's like after a billion years, he might crank out Macbeth or something. Well, I don't think so. Like God, we are personal. We were made for relationships. Well, well yeah, animals are personal too. Yeah, okay, but let's go on. We are emotional. Well, you know, have you seen my dog? My dog gets emotional, and she gets sad when I leave, and she's happy when I'm back. We are rational. Well, have you seen dolphins? They're pretty smart. We are moral, and we are volitional. We, we have wills. We, we make decisions. We calculate uh, circumstances, and we make decisions based on input. <coughs> We were created to be in communion and fellowship with God. We are personal, we are emotional, we are rational, we are moral, we are volitional, and we are spiritual. Not immaterial, but we have that reasonable and immortal soul that resides within us. So that's the third, right? So first, let us make man. Second, let us make man. Third, let us make man in our image. Fourth, let him have dominion. and or Actually, let them have dominion. Man and woman. Let them have dominion. There the word is rada. To rule, to have dominion. God created man not only to bear his image and likeness, 
but to be his vice-regent, to be his, his um, uh, stand-in, if you will. We are, we are the ones who govern and have dominion uh, in, in, in God's name, if you will. Okay? Um, Adam, when he was created, was created to be a priest-king. We'll see that when we look at chapter 2 and 3. He was a priest-king in the holy temple garden of God in Eden. He was to manage it. He was to keep it, and he was to guard it. He was to keep the serpent out, which he failed to do. But Adam was a priest king with Eve as his helper, and together they were to exercise dominion over all of the creation. They were to govern as God's vice regents. And together then they were to fill the earth, as we said, uh, with the image of God as his representatives. Now dominion was given to Adam. And he fails. Now the dominion mandate lies with Jesus. Now, I don't want to go into this too deeply, but there are some who, when they hear dominion mandate, and they think that it's now the Christian's duty to go out and to sort of conquer the world for Christ, to go out and to to advance the kingdom. You know, they, they take the song Onward Christian Soldiers a little too seriously. They're out there, and it's like the dominion. They're, they're called dominionists. They're called reconstructionists. They're called theonomists. And they want to see the world sort of like under the Christian banner, if you will. Okay? Um, and they, they take that from this dominion mandate that you see here in Genesis 1 when God said to Adam... You have dominion. You shall rule over all the fish, right? Uh, over all the fish of the sea. This is verse 28. The birds of the heavens over every living creature that moves on the earth. Combined with that, he says, be fruitful and multiply. So when God gives him dominion, he says, look, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with my image and rule over it. Now, Adam, like we said, failed. He failed in that task very shortly. <laughs> in chapter 3, we're going to see that Adam failed. Now, we do see part of the dominion mandate repeated in Genesis 9. Sorry, we're going back and forth between Genesis 1 and 9, but Genesis 9. So just as God blessed Adam and said, be fruitful and multiply... In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God blesses Noah and his sons and says to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Same language as in Genesis 1, 28. But instead of saying, Rule over the earth, over the birds of the air, over the fishes of the sea, over the creatures in the earth, he says here, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I give you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now if you flip over, please, to Psalm 8. Psalm chapter 8. Because what I'm trying to suggest here is that because Adam failed in his dominion mandate, we... As his image created, you know, the, the people who are born in Adam, regular human beings, we do not have the same dominion mandate that Adam had. We certainly have the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, 
But this idea of ruling and reigning over God's creation, I think, is not so much ours as it is to Christ, who is the second Adam. We'll look at that in a moment. But here in Psalm 8, we're going to look at Psalm 8, and then this is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, so we're going to look at chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 in a moment. But here in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, well, I'll just read the whole psalm. The whole psalm is good. Um, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, so the creation, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, came, that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then goes on and on. So here you've got, well, it looks like a dominion mandate, right? Creation. What is man that, you've, that you care for him? Well, you've, you know, God created him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And then you've given him dominion. Now, I would argue this is man before the fall. Because if you now flip over to Hebrews, please, chapter 2. Because the writer to Hebrews quotes this, those, those verses, verses 4, 5, and 6 in Psalm 8. He quotes them in chapter 2. And again, if you understand the, the concept of, of Hebrews, um, the concept of Hebrews is that Christ is superior to um, angels. He is superior to... Moses, he is superior to the, high, uh, the earthly high priest. He mediates a superior covenant than the old covenant. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, because here he's trying to make the argument that, that Christ is superior to the angels. And he says, look, it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come, world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love the way the writer of Hebrews does that. Yeah, it's, it's said somewhere in Scripture, that is Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, now this is the author expounding on the passage that he has just uh, read. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Who is the him? Sunday school answer. Jesus. The him is Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That is Christ coming into his human, uh, taking on his human nature. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Dominion was given to Adam. Adam failed. Now the dominion mandate lies with Christ, who has fulfilled it. He has fulfilled it. Now the dominion mandate takes a different uh, flavor now that we're in Christ. And that dominion mandate is really the great commission. 
to go out into the world and make disciples. We have dominion by making disciples, bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. All right, that was four. Fifth. I know, we're, we're chuck, trucking along here. I told you the first part was going to be a little longer. All right, so... Let us make man, let us make man, let us make man in our image, let him have dominion. Fifth, both man and woman, sorry, both man and woman are created in the image of God. Two genders that are complementary. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, as I said earlier. It's not that man has the image of God and woman does not. Man and woman together are the image of God. We have the image of God together. And note too, again, not to inject too much 21st century cultural battles into it, but how many genders are there? Two. What are they? Male and female, okay? There's no zir, there's no zip, and there's no this, there's no that, there's no the other thing. Male and female, he created them. Together, they complement one another. Not like, oh, you're so beautiful, that kind of comp- complement with an E. They, they, they fit together, okay? When, men, when man and woman come together in the bond of marriage, you've got sort of the, they, what, is, well, what does it say in Genesis 2? They become what? One flesh. It's like you're taking two puzzle pieces that fit together perfectly, and together they make a whole unit. Now, again, it's not like man has half the image and woman has half the image. They both have the image, but men and women are different. Okay, let's just face it. Men and women are different. They both are image bearers, and when they come together in a one flesh union, they complement one another. And then in verses uh, 28 through 31, we see that God blesses them, provides for them, and declares it all very good. So God blesses them and and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, command to fill the earth and have dominion. We looked at that. Then verse 29, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. So I'm providing for you. You will have plentiful food and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps in the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So, they were vegetarians. Okay. Sorry. I know if Fred were here, he would kind of wrinkle his nose at that. But you notice that it's after the fall, then you're allowed to eat flesh. But they were vegetarians. I don't know what else to say about that. Um, And it was so. And then verse 31... And God saw everything, and it was very good. Everything was good up until the point he created man and put him into the the creation, and then it became very good, very good. And then you have, there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. No sin, no death, no destruction, no no, uh, generations of death and evolution, because evolution requires death in order to create the mutations. No, it was all created as it is, perfectly good, and God says it was very good. And now the seventh day. So when you get to the seventh day, 
Everything is done. Everything is finished. Everything is complete. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. The heavens and the earth have been created. They have been ordered. They have been populated. Uh, They have been pronounced very good. The work is done. And of course, seven, the number of completion, the number of perfection, seven days. Remember we said this last time, you can measure uh, days and months and years by, by the stars that have been put into the heavens, right? The day is the earth rotating on its axis. That's a that's a celestial event. The, the, the month is the moon orbiting the earth. The, the year is the earth orbiting the sun. But the week has no, no way of, of de- delineating it in the heavens. The week is the week because God created everything in six days. And on the seventh, he rested. He stopped. He completed his work. And he, in a sense, like Jesus did when he completed his work, he sat down. Everything is done. The heavens and the earth have been populated. It's all very good. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. Now, of course, while the work of creation has ended, God to this day still sustains the work of creation. Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3 talk about how uh, Christ uh, maintains everything by the word of his power. Everything is, uh, finds its, uh, lives and moves and has its being in God. That's Acts 17. But creation is done. And now God sustains it. He sustains the creation. And he rests. And that word rests is the word Shabbat, Sabbath. He Sabbaths. <laughs> he rests. It's not like God's like, Whew, that's a lot. I'm tired, man. That was, that's a lot of work there. It's a lot of speaking and forming and doing. No, no, he's not tired. His work is done. His work is complete. So he rests, he stops, he ceases from the work of creation. And he blesses the day, he makes it holy, he blesses it, Barak. Yeah, I know, it sounds like the name of a former president. I didn't name him. It's the Hebrew word, Barak, it means to be blessed. And Kadosh, to, to make holy. The day becomes blessed, the day becomes sanctified. Oh, I lied, we are going to look at a, another catechism question. I misspoke. (laughs) I misspoke. The seventh day then sets the pattern of work and rest. Right? That's the whole, why did he do it in six days and rest on the seventh? To set the pattern of work and rest. Work for six days, rest on the seventh. Work for six days, rest on the seventh. This is codified, if you will. I said we would look at this. Exodus 20. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were nothing new. The Ten Commandments is just an expression of the law of God that is already written on our hearts in creation. But God now puts it in ten words. That's literally what it means there. Not ten commandments, ten words. But in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Here you have the fourth commandment, the fourth word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? Here's the ground for the commandment. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The language right out of Genesis 2. He blessed the Sabbath day, made it holy. So as God works six days and rests and ceases from his labors in the seventh, so we too are to follow that pattern of work and rest. Work and rest. And I said we were done with the catechism, and I said I misspoke. But in Lord's Day 38, question 103, it's just the part that talks about the fourth commandment. Uh, So in Lord's Day 38, question 103, what does God require in the fourth commandment? Well, in the first place, God wills that the ministry of the gospel in schools be maintained, and that I, especially on the day of rest, Diligently attend church to learn the word of God, to use the holy sacraments, to call publicly upon the Lord, and to give Christian alms. In the second place, at all the days of my life, I rest from my evil works, allow the Lord to work in me by his spirit, and thus begin in this life the everlasting Sabbath. So the Sabbath principle, if you will, is something that is to point forward to our eternal Sabbath. Our eternal rest. The Sabbath principle is is a creation ordinance, we like to say. It was established in creation. It was not established in the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath was established at creation. So thus it is not set aside when we set aside the old Mosaic Code. The Sabbath principle is not set aside. Okay, The way it was celebrated in the Old Covenant is set aside. We don't have to celebrate Sabbaths. So when Paul says in Colossians, uh, don't let anyone uh, you know, uh, burden you with, with new moons and festivals and Sabbaths, because every time a Jewish festival uh, was, was proclaimed and celebrated, they had Sabbath celebrations in those festivals. There were certain things they would do. They would have a, it, oftentimes it would begin with a, like a holy convocation and it would end with a holy convocation. It's those Sabbaths that have been done away with, but the principle of six days work, one day rest has not been set aside. Now, special note, going back to Genesis 2. Does day seven end? Is there an evening and a morning the seventh day? No. The seventh day is not concluded with the typical there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. So you can make an argument, and I, I would, that the seventh day, in a sense, is eternal. It is ongoing. The dwelling place of God and man is complete, and it is now up to Adam, at least as the image bearer, to enter and enjoy God's rest. God enters into his rest on the seventh day. And we are now called, at least Adam now has the mandate, to enter into that rest. We'll see this when we look at chapter 2. He's given a command. 
And that command is, if you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat, you will die. The unspoken part of that command is, if you don't eat, you will live. You will enter into my rest. But the, the seventh day is not done. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. The seventh day, in a sense, is God entering into his rest. And he calls us to enter into his rest. Now, obviously, Adam failed to enter into God's rest. So we need a new Adam to secure that for us. And that's what we will see here in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It's going to be a kind of a lengthy passage, but it's good. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, this is uh, Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and proved me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now he's speaking of the wilderness generation there um, in, in the Exodus. The, they wandered, right? And why did they, they, not, they did not enter the rest? Because when they were about to go into the promised land, they refused. They saw the giants. They said, yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But guess what? There's a lot of big people there. And we look like ants compared to them. We're not going in there. We'll never beat them. Except for Caleb and Joshua. are like, no, let's go, let's go. That's why everyone names their kids Caleb and Joshua. But they would not enter his rest. Verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in you, any of you, an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. So now he's applying it to the people he's writing to. In fact, many people, and I agree, believe Hebrews is really a sermon. So this is like a written form of a sermon he's now preaching. All right, the wilderness generation didn't enter God's rest. Now beware, brethren, lest there in you be any, uh, an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today. Right? Today, if you will hear his voice, now harden your hearts. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Again, the wilderness generation who were forced to wander until they all died off. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, so there is still a rest to enter, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they, did, uh, they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So it did not profit the wilderness generation. They heard the gospel, but they, they did not believe it. Verse 3, for we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So in a sense, we are in the rest. We, we, we do not have to work to earn our salvation. That work has been done. We can rest in that. Verse 4, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day. Again, there's that Hebrews author way of saying somewhere someone wrote this. He has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. So there's that quote from Genesis 2.3. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, the wilderness generation. Verse 7. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Psalm 95, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So now he's speaking, the wilderness generation didn't enter the rest, but Joshua did bring them into the promised land. And they did have rest from their, from their journey. They did have rest from their foes but not the eternal Sabbath rest that he is speaking of here. Because then he says, why would then David had said later, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 9, very key. There therefore remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered in his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Sabbath rest was held out to Adam. Adam failed to achieve it, but there is still a future Sabbath rest waiting for us it is not the promised land. It is one that the new Adam has secured, Jesus Christ. He now rests, and in a sense we rest from our labors in the sense of having to earn our salvation, but there is still a rest yet to come. That is when the new heavens and the new earth come down and we enter in that much better promised land, what the promised land pointed to. So the Sabbath, of course, then is more than just one day in seven. It is more from rest, from slavery in the promised land. It is eternal rest, fulfilled in Christ and provided in the new heavens and the new earth. One last passage, if you will, please. Mark, gospel, the gospel of Mark. Because I, I, I want to caution against this you know, the Sabbath and how, what the Sabbath principle is and then how sometimes the Sabbath is observed by people. Um, and what you have here in Mark, uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, is Jesus um, having confrontations with the religious leaders. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Here we read, one Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying, so here's the, here are the party poopers. <laughs> the Pharisees come in and say, look, 
Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read? I love that. (laughs) You guys should have read this. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. So here Jesus is like, look, you Pharisees, you've got the Sabbath all wrong. You are making man, you are making uh, man for the Sabbath. You are imposing rules, and then you are saying, look, you are breaking the rules if you don't do what we tell you to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, look, this, you, you are flipping the Sabbath on its head. The Sabbath was given to man, for man. It is a rest. It is, it is, it is a rest that we are to enter now by faith, but it was, it was, it was, it was held of... Uh, it was held out to Adam in the garden to enter the rest and cease from his labors, not to have burdensome rules placed on you. So the Sabbath principle, this rest, is again more than one day in seven. It is more than entering a physical promised land. This rest will be fulfilled when Christ returns and is provided in the new heavens and the new earth. So we are done uh, for tonight. Um, we looked at the days of creation. Uh, next time, Lord willing, which will be on the 19th, so in two weeks, um, we will look at basically just the rest of chapter 2, verses 4 through 25.